0: Well, if you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, if you're not already there, Uh, whether to read the last page of a novel uh, or the last line of a book has been um, a debate for as long as I can remember. Uh, Some people like to read the last page because it helps, particularly of um, those books that seem to be a little more um, tension filled. They feel like that if they read the last page that will release some of that tension so that they can pay attention to more of the subtleties of, of the character development and the plot line and things like that. Um, others think that if you read the last line of the novel or read the last line of the book that you're ruining the whole thing, uh, that you're, you're taking away from the importance of, of what the author was wanting to do. Um, I personally couldn't do it, but I have to admit I read very little fiction, so it's not something that I encounter a whole lot. Um, I can't even watch a a sporting event that I've recorded if I know the final score, no matter how close it is. I mean, I just, it's a waste of time. Um, And yet this is exactly what I'm going to do tonight. Um, I want to start with the conclusion. I want to start with where we're going to end I want to share where we're going to end up. Uh, I'm going to read the last page, so to speak. I'm going to do what a lot of dramas have been doing lately. Uh, If you watch any television at all, uh, a lot of dramas have recently been... uh, The opening scene is actually the climax of the show, and then they spend the rest of the time going back in time and bringing you up to speed on how they got there at that Uh, climactic moment and each time they come back from a commercial it'll say two weeks earlier and one week earlier and one day earlier and 12 hours earlier and and, and that's how I would like to approach tonight so here's the conclusion here's where we're going to end greatness is achieved via a couple of paths Uh, one involves ladder climbing it involves power grabbing and status seeking. It involves one-upmanship because the prestige that is desired is acquired through particular positions that, that are obtained or attained. But it's a path of bondage. It's a path that leads to exhaustion. Um, and it's a course that's traveled actually um, naturally because we travel that path in and of ourselves, by ourselves, in our own humanity, because we're left to do so again by ourselves to live our lives as, as we began. But the alternative involves it's a it's a path of humility. It's a path of one a one down posture. It seeks to uh, or it seeks the best interest of others. We put the best interests of others before our own. It's a path of freedom, and it's a path that leads to rest. And it's a path or a course that's actually lived spiritually. It's a path in which we live lives that are no longer our own, because we've been bought with a price, we've been ransomed by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question before us, as as it is always, is what are we going to choose? Which path will we choose? Which path will you choose? So now let's go back. Let's go back and take a look at how we arrive at that conclusion. Uh, let's stand, if you would, in the honor of God's word. Daniel did a great job of reading the passage tonight. We're going to look at verses 17 to 28. I want to read verses 17 to 19 and then... Uh, Jump down to verse 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we thank You for this, Your Word, and we thank You for the reading of it, the hearing of it, now the preaching of it. Would You grant us ears to hear, that we may be different as we leave. Father, may we see Jesus tonight. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, in the words of Yogi Berra, deja vu, it's like deja vu all over again. Uh, for those of you that have been with us, you understand that because it seems like we've been here before and, and we have, not necessarily here in Matthew 20, but we've heard this same sort of story for the last few weeks. Because we've heard, over those last few weeks, Jesus explaining of why He's going to Jerusalem. We've heard Him speak of His death and resurrection, and we've heard Him address the issue of greatness within the kingdom. Not only greatness within the kingdom, but how we can become great. It's something that we've heard from chapter 16 all the way up now to chapter 20. And so the headings might be the same. But the characters are a little different, the circumstances are a little different, and the content is slightly different. There are some new things that he's added in this context. So we want to look at three things tonight as we look at this passage from 17 to 28. We want to look at the message repeated, because it is repeated. We want to look at a mother's request, and then we want to look at the Messiah's response. So the message repeated, the mother's request, and the Messiah's response. Jesus and the twelve and, and several others are on their way to Jerusalem, as has been the case, for, again, for the last several chapters. And Jesus, at this point, takes uh, the twelve and pulls them aside. And he says something uh, very similar to what he did in chapter 16, actually identically to what he did in 16. He says that they're going to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. He also repeats what he did in chapter 17, and he says that they will be he will be delivered over in a hostile manner. In other words, he's going to be betrayed. He's speaking of what Judas is going to do and that that's going to be a, a kind of a hostile maneuver on his part. But he also adds some new things here in chapter 20. or Before we get there, he also says things that they both had in common, both uh, seven, or 16 and 17. And he says that he's going to die and he's going to be raised on the third day. So this would have been something that they've heard before, that they would, their ears would have perked up, but at the same time thought, you know, we've heard this. But then he adds something to it in chapter 20. This time he includes the fact that the religious leaders are actually going to turn him over to the Gentile leaders to, to be mocked and to be flogged, which is really to be beaten, and to be crucified, to die. So the Gentiles are new in this uh, this particular chapter. And though he alluded to the fact that he would be uh, crucified on a cross, and we read that from chapter 16 when he encourages the, the disciples to take up their cross and to follow him, he hasn't actually said that yet, but he does here in chapter 20. He is going to be, in fact, crucified. Now we mentioned back in chapter 17 that due to their own preconceived ideas of the Messiah and the kingdom, that they were having trouble understanding what Jesus was saying. But of course, he knew that. He knew that they were struggling, and he also knew that eventually they were going to change. But at that point, they were still struggling. But the question that I was asking this week is that why wouldn't he be a little more forceful if they were struggling to understand? And if... Why would he pull the twelve aside from a larger group? Because it seems like if they were going to understand, one of the ways to bring that about would be to increase the number of ears that were actually hearing, so that they could actually, you know, they could talk about it among themselves, and maybe some light bulbs would have started going off for those that were there. And so, why hasn't he done uh, done that? And and there was one possibility that crossed my mind, and it's that. if they had fully understood or fully comprehended what was going on and if he had gotten more people involved it was very possible that those to who once he was actually betrayed and crucified that it would've been possible that those religious leaders could have used that against him in other words it could have looked like he had set it all up and manipulated the end or the outcome if he had been talking about it more and more and he had been drumming up support and he had been widening that circle of understanding and then he actually carried that... They they may have accused him of manipulating the whole situation for his own end. But by leaving them in that state of, of incomplete understanding and by minimizing that circle, I believe that that accusation was actually nullified. But can you imagine the conversation once it actually happened. Imagine after the crucifixion, just imagine after the resurrection and hearing the conversation of, you know, he said this was going to happen. And somebody else in the room saying, you know, he actually told us three times. And someone else probably saying, well, you know, he gave us more details each and every time and then somebody chiming in, yeah, and it happened just like he said it would. Is it any wonder at that point that they did, in fact, take up their cross and follow him? Is it any wonder that they waited and went to the nations preaching forgiveness and repentance in his name, having waited on the Holy Spirit to clothe them with power on high before they went out to go as Jesus told them to do? Because the truth of the matter is, if he had been exactly right about his death and resurrection, if he had every detail right, they knew they should listen to him. They knew they should obey him. They knew that they should do exactly what he had asked them to do. And it would have been at that point that their faith would have been strengthened. It would have been that point that that, that, that strengthening of faith would have come to that, that full fruition. And you know, I believe sometimes, sometimes I think that we overthink things. Maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but I think many of you may as well. We overthink things, particularly in moments of weak faith, in moments when doubts creep in, in moments when our circumstances get the best of us, or when temptations arise, or when struggles appear, and pain and the pain and unfairness of life overwhelm us. We can overthink things. Times like the the untimely death of a child or a family member or a friend. Maybe an unwelcome diagnosis of some kind. Or when a husband leaves a wife... Or when someone loses a job, or if there's some sort of abuse, or if there's some, something going on in, in regards to a mental illness, it can be overwhelming, and that list could go on. And we search for explanations and reasons, and so often we come up short. Sometimes, when all is said and done, and we peel everything back, all that we're left with is Jesus. Jesus. And brothers and sisters, he died exactly the way he said he was going to die. And his death and the circumstances around his death completely shattered the idea that life is going to be pain-free without suffering and fair. But he follows that up, right? And he said he would rise again. And He rose again just as He said He would rise again. And His rising completely shatters the idea that pain and suffering and unfairness are random, meaningless, and without purpose. Wherever you are tonight and right now, Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your feelings, and as real and as intense as those circumstances are and those feelings may be, you can trust the facts of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can trust the reasons for His death and resurrection. You can trust the results of His death and resurrection. It or they are true. His word is true, and because it's true, we can sing as we sung just a few minutes ago, though troubles assail and dangers affright, though friends should all fail and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, the scripture assures us, the Lord will provide. No question. when we get back to where they are pre-cross and pre-Jerusalem, the disciples are continuing to wrestle with this idea of the Messiah and wrestle with the kingdom and wrestle with the idea of greatness, despite the fact, if you look back in chapter 19... He says that all 12 of them are going to sit on thrones and and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And even though they've heard that, they're still arguing among themselves. They're still vying for positions in the kingdom. You know, that's not enough. They've got to one up each other. They're looking for that greater prominence in the kingdom. And I'm not sure if... If James and John have just have been fed up with Peter, if they're tired of his mouth and the foot and mouth disease and all that's been going on with him the last two or three chapters, but they decide to take matters into their own hands and they come up with their own plan, and they decide to send in mom. Uh, some think that uh, their mother was actually the sister of Jesus' mother, and so that would make... Um, her Jesus' aunt, and that would make the boys the cousins of Jesus. And so, you know, what's up their sleeve, if that's in fact true, what's up their sleeve is not only to send in mom, but they're, they're going to play the, the, the mom card and the family card. And she comes in and kneels down before him and says, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at the left in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure there was more drama than that. Because it's something that she desires. It's something we learned from the other Gospels that they desire. And they do put her up to this. This isn't something that she came up with on her own. And as you can imagine, the other ten are not happy about it. The Bible says they're indignant. And so despite all that Jesus has been saying, regardless of the self-denial that he describes in chapter 16, despite the receiving and restoring and the reconciling with others in chapter 18, regardless of the first being last and the last being first in chapter 19, they still have this wrong idea about greatness. They're still struggling with it. And there are a couple of things going on. One, of course, it's obvious, is that each one of them still have this desire to one up the other. They still have this desire to achieve position. They still want prominence and power and prestige. Uh, their their self perceptions of themselves are all based upon what other people think about them and their acceptance and rejection by others. Um, their their uh, what position they hold and the performance uh, in that position. But something that's not as obvious, I think, or at least it wasn't to me, it struck me this week that they actually are believing at this point that that greatness is based upon that position. They believe in some way that they don't need to pay their dues. They don't believe that they need to work or earn their greatness. It just should be bestowed upon them based upon the position that they hold as apostles. So it's based upon uh, who they are, the position that they hold, and really who they're with. And we give them a hard time, really. We're really quick to jump on the disciples for how they act. And I get it because... Really, they're acting like three-year-olds at the top of a slide, vying to be first down the slide at the city park, rather than those upon which the kingdom of heaven is going, or the, uh, the the church upon upon whom the church is going to be established. And so, we give them a hard time, but we are no different. We all want to be on top. We all want to be first. We all want to be first in line. We want to be recognized, and we want to be valued, and we want to be respected. And really, we want those things bestowed upon us. In some cases, we're willing to work hard for them. But really, it's about, in some ways, we think that that we are inherently valuable, and and and, and are owed that those those accolades and, and the positions, and somehow they're owed and. And it's nothing but pride. It's nothing but pride. And that pride is timeless and universal and left unchecked. Proverbs 16, 18 says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that explains why Jesus responds the way he responds. He responds in three ways. He confronts their confusion... He clarifies the reality, and he calls them to something different. And it starts in verse 22. He says, "Jesus answered, "You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink?" And as I've mentioned several times, they're seeing, they're seeing um, the kingdom. And, and, and Jesus' role as the Messiah through this lens, uh, through, through a lens of, of an earthly kingdom and an earthly king. Uh, they're seeing that lens again through power. They're seeing through the lens of power. Rather than seeing the kingdom through the lens of a spiritual kingdom that's going to be established through sacrifice and death. They haven't made that switch. And they also haven't made the switch that not only is the kingdom going to be established, not only is there going to be a cost to that establishment, but there's also going to be a cost to be a citizen within that kingdom. He's been saying this. So over and over for several chapters now, the kingdom is about humiliation and suffering and self-denial and self-sacrifice. All of those things precede that full and final consummation of a kingdom where all things would will, will be glorified and, and joy will be had. So Jesus begins to confront that confusion. Confusion. And he does it on a couple of levels. One, of course, they don't understand the nature of the kingdom, and so he wants to confront that. But they also don't understand, and he wants to confront the fact that it's going to cost them something to be a part of the kingdom, not to mention um, what is going to cost them to be on his right and left. And so he matter of factly states that they don't know what they're asking. You don't know what you're asking. And he asks, point blank, are you sure that you're ready to suffer as I have suffered? Are you sure that you're ready to suffer in my name and on my behalf? And they, of course, are just run right in. Yes, we're ready. But we know that's not the case. We're able to see and look back and know that they, they aren't yet ready. And I think there are two things for us at this point that we ought to pause and just consider one is this, one is that that we should pause and think about how we offer others or how we share the gospel. We ought to be careful not to offer and everything will be better if you choose Jesus kind of gospel. Because this is obviously not the case. While there is joy and healing and hope, and forgiveness, and security, and promise, and blessing. Absolutely there is. We should not promise what we cannot deliver. And secondly, I think this should really cause us to pause and think about how we pray for our own sanctification. We ought to consider how we pray for our sanctification. I read this this week in J.C. Ryle's commentary and it was too good not to share. He says, We ask that God would make us holy and good. It is a good request indeed. But are we prepared to be sanctified by any process that God in His wisdom may call on us to pass through? Are we ready to be purified by affliction, weaned from the world by bereavements, drawn nearer to God by losses, sicknesses, and sorrows? Alas, these are hard questions, but if we are not, our Lord might, might, might well say to us, Ye know not what you ask. Sometimes we think that when we pray for our sanctification, that the Lord would make us holy, that He's simply going to bestow us holiness and skip the process. And we need to remember that that's not the case. Sanctification is not always an easy process. And so as we read through this passage, may we take pause and consider and be mindful of our own understanding of the kingdom and what it's like to be citizens within it. But may we also consider the gospel and how we are to present it and how we pray and how we should be ready for the process through which God desires to sanctify us and to conform us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and as I mentioned James and John answer yes right? they, they charge full force in, into a yes and, but they don't do it Right, initially they run and hide but eventually that changes And Jesus knows that it is going to change, and He clarifies that, and He says that they will, in fact, eventually drink the cup that He is to drink. He lets them know that it is coming, and of course we know that's true, and how James dies, and how John is exiled on Patmos. But in verse 23, He clarifies something very important for them. He says, To sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. It is Jesus who has appointed the apostles, but it is not his role to determine which of them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. It's the Father's role. In other words, their apostleship did not determine their greatness in the kingdom, their earthly position did not determine their heavenly greatness. The Father has already determined who will be great. It was the Father who has chosen His people before the foundation of the world. It is the Father who has created, as we learned in Ephesians, who has created good works for His people to walk in them. And it is the Father who has determined who will sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand. In other words, again, earthly positions do not equate into heavenly greatness. And so we can think that pastoring a multi-campus megachurch doesn't mean greatness in the kingdom. We also know that pastoring and, and, and being a church planner doesn't determine greatness in the kingdom. Leading the fastest growing church in the country doesn't mean greatness. Being on the regular speaking circuit and writing books doesn't mean greatness. But also living in obscurity doesn't mean greatness. It's not about our positions here. He said it twice in chapter 19. The last will be first, and the first will be last. The Father determines greatness, and greatness is not determined by position, but by service. Greatness is determined... My service, And that's what leads him to this call to be something different. Something different than the world around us. Look at verse 25. He says, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The focus of the world is power and position. And the focus of the kingdom is humility and service. Vastly, vastly different. And Jesus calls the disciples here in Matthew 20. And He calls us today to be different than the world around us. And to humble ourselves and to serve one another and our neighbor. To serve one another and our neighbor. Greatness in, in the kingdom is not measured by how high we might rise, but how low we might stoop. And what we're willing to do for the benefit, the, the, the length at which we're willing to go for the benefit of those around us and for our neighbor. And what's so amazing is that Jesus here doesn't ask us any, to do anything that he hasn't himself been willing to do and hasn't in fact done. His last statement is the key. Not only has He been an example for us in showing us what it means to serve by laying down His life and humbling Himself to the point of death on the cross for not only the sake of just others, but His enemies. It was that act. It was Him laying down His life on the cross. It was His drinking of the cup of Wrath on the behalf of sinners that actually ransomed us and set us free to go and serve. Apart from His work, we would not be able to do that. His sacrifice was an example, but more importantly, it's the means by which you and I are able to go and do what He's called us to do. We've been set free to live and to go and to serve, we've been ransomed so that we might serve. Our lives in Paul's language, our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We're bond servants of his, and he calls us to go and to serve each other and our neighbor. And we arrive at the conclusion, back where we began, two paths. Greatness is achieved through ladder climbing, power grabbing, status seeking or one upmanship because the prestige that we gain is gained through our position and the position acquired. But it's a path of bondage. It's a path, it's a, it's a path of exhaustion. It's a course traveled naturally. The alternative is a path of humility. It's a one down posture. It's a loving and a serving of others around us out of a desire to put their best interest before our own. It, it's a path that, that leads to rest because it's a path of freedom. And it's a path that's followed spiritually, living lives that are no longer our own because we've been bought with a price. We've been ransomed and set free by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is, which path are you on? Which path will you take? Which path are we on? Which path will we take? And may I say tonight, may we choose wisely. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.